Welcome you all again uh, to our Sunday service with Sheepgate. Uh, it's a pleasure to see all of you. We're one week away from Christmas Day, which is quite extraordinary. I don't know about you, but as the years go by, it doesn't feel like Christmas is around the corner, but uh, we are very much um, at the sort of tail end of the year. Of course, that special time of the year for at least Christians, for many others, um, we call Christmas. We remember, of course, the coming of Christ. Um, Let's continue our sermon series today. We're in Mark chapter 2, reading verses 23 to 28. So if you could turn with me to the second chapter of Mark, we're reading verses 23 to 28. Of course, this is the uh, very famous conversation that Jesus has regarding the actions of his disciples on the Sabbath, questioned by the Pharisees, and an extraordinary response from Christ is given to us. So Mark 2, verses 23 to 28. If you have a Bible, please open it up. Follow in yours, and I'll read from mine. Once again, Mark 2, 23 to 28. This is the word of God. And it happened that he was passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples began to make their way along while picking the heads of grain. The Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and he and his companions became hungry? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priests. And he also gave it to those who were with him. Jesus said to them, The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Amen. It's the word of God. I'd like to pray before we begin today. And we're praying, of course, uh, as we do each week for an unreached people group. This particular group, they come from Vietnam. Uh, They're called the Nung, spelled N-U-N-G in English. About a million of these people, so 1.01 million uh, of these people, uh, only 1% Christian. So a very much unreached people group, mainly living in the northern regions of Vietnam. So uh, we're going to be praying for the Nung of Vietnam today. Globally, uh, many things are happening. Uh, We're seeing, of course, an uptick and rise in COVID cases around the world. I don't know if that's something you still track, but it's a thing. Um, We're seeing, of course, in China, um, an incredible conflict ensuing between its people and its government. That is of interest to us as we continue to pray for that nation and its people. Um, Ukraine, Russia continues to be a point of concern as things are beginning to escalate as we're now very much reaching the 10-month mark of this war. It's crazy to think about how long this war has lasted. Uh, But we'd like to pray today locally, and we'd like to pray locally for the church. There's a lot of conversation happening in pastoral circles. Um, I would deem it unfortunate, but um, maybe you can be a better 
uh, objective thought on this is that many churches are actually choosing not to gather next week on the 25th, um, simply citing it as, you know, overlaps of Christmas, so prioritizing perhaps family and other, other gatherings. Um, this was very heartbreaking for me to read about and uh, hearing some pastors speak in this way. Um, I think it's most appropriate that the church gathers on Christmas Day. I don't know how you feel about that, but um, it made me ponder this week and uh, made me question uh, some things, not so much judgment, judgment against them, but rather prayer for them. And so I'm asking you to pray with me as I pray on behalf of our church and as we lead, our, lead this time into the Word of God, that we pray for church communities to be centered on the Word, to be centered on Christ. Um, and I think that's going to be very much appropriate as, we, as it ties in very nicely to what we're going to be dealing with today, as it deals with Sabbath appropriately. <laughs> Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the penmanship of Mark, the inspiration of the Spirit over his life, to leave this text with us today. We ask, O oh Lord, that this text would not simply be something that we read today and are, are, we're just simply recipients of information and data, but rather that these things, the truths contained within, would be most powerful in convicting our hearts to know Christ for who he is truly and to follow him faithfully. Heavenly Father, we also pray uh, for... Uh, just your word to compel us as we live our lives out daily. We pray for the Nung of Vietnam. We pray for their salvation. We pray for the hearing of God's word in their life, that they would come to hear and respond to the gospel in faith. We pray for missionaries and churches in and around that area and perhaps other parts of the world that would travel there and faithfully share the gospel with these people. We pray for them, O oh God. We also pray, of course, for... Um, the many different issues and political things that are happening in the world, uh, matters that sometimes feel distant to us, but are of utmost urgency in our prayer. We ask that our intercession would yield perhaps a positive result uh, through your work in lives and people around the world. We pray locally here for the church, the church of Christ. We ask for this body to be faithful to your word, that it would be centered on Christ and his gospel. We thank you. And we pray all this in your name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, we have journeyed now for a number of weeks now in the Gospel of Mark. And lo and behold, we are still on chapter 2. We finally completed today, uh, the week before Christmas. Next week's sermon will temporarily pause on the sermon series in Mark. And we'll go to, of course, an appropriate Christmas passage. Uh, but allow me to share with you the word of God from Mark 2, 23 to 28 today. Perhaps a passage many of you who grew up in the church are familiar with. The parallel passages of this pericope that we have just read today can be found in Luke chapter 6 and Matthew chapter 12. In all three renditions of this narrative, Jesus makes the most powerful proclamation at the conclusion of each passage and text. That, of course, he is the Son of Man who is Lord of the Sabbath. This is an emphatic end to a conversation, but how we get there to this exclamation of Jesus about who he is is quite extraordinary when you consider the flow of today's text. The build-up to the statement is on a grander scale even more impressive. Mark, in just his first two chapters, has, um, has already given us so much information on who Jesus is, the nature of his, of his identity, and the work that he came to accomplish. The first chapter begins with the pronouncement of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's the very first verse. Verse 3 declares the coming of the Lord himself, 
Verse 7 indicates one mightier than John the Baptist who is to come. In verse 11, God the Father declares Jesus as his beloved son. We even see a demon in verse 24 of chapter 1 identify Jesus properly as the Holy One of God. In the second chapter, we see in verse 7 a questioning of Jesus' nature conjured by his forgiveness of the sins of a paralytic that was lowered to his feet. And to that questioning, Jesus answers in verse 10 that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, making him equal with God because the Pharisees rightly know that only God can forgive sins. And then in verse 17, we are told that Jesus is like that of a physician who has come to heal the sick and that he is like a bridegroom in verses 19 to 20 and that he is the new wine and new wineskin that has come to replace the old wine and the old wineskin in verse 22. All in all, in a very condensed piece of text, we are told so much of who Jesus is. But something else is told to us of Jesus, and that is the nature of his work, the reason for which he came. And it is expelled to us through the means of demonstrating, in the Greek, his exousia, or his power and authority. Time and time again, in just the mere first two chapters of Mark, we are shown Christ's incredible and total power and authority over all things. Put another way, we're shown his absolute lordship over all creation in heaven and on earth. He is truly God, and thus he is Lord over all. We've seen his lordship over temptation, his lordship over his people, his lordship over disease and sickness, his lordship over the demons, his lordship over sin, his lordship over the religious order, over the religious powers, and his lordship over cultural norms and practices. And today we are told that the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And we're going to get to what that means. So three points to today's sermon. And I'm going to do my best to zip through this, but you've got to pay close attention to capture everything I'm trying to get to you. This sermon started with really 10 pages. I've narrowed it down to five, so we're really missing half the content here. But I'll do my best. The, f- the three points are as follows. Verses 23 to 24, the first point, the Sabbath and its laws. I'm going to outline to you why this questioning is being brought to Jesus. The second is verses 25 to 26. Jesus' appeal to scripture. And then third, 27 to 28, the Son of Man is Lord of all. Just three points to today's sermon. Classic three-point sermon. First point, the Sabbath and its laws, verses 23 to 24. Again, you're going to want to have your Bibles open as we go through the text. Rules exist in all fields and areas of life, whether it be our country's laws, rules at the workplace, rules at school, and even basic rules at home under the care of our parents and caregivers. Rules are in place to keep order and to protect us from harm. They're designed to uphold the most important values and to act as a guide for what is right or wrong, acceptable, unacceptable. One such field that works so limited tightly within the framework of rules is sports. Now we're in World Cup fever season, so I'm gonna draw your attention to some soccer here. Back in the 1994 Caribbean Cup, This is a small but locally significant soccer tournament in South America and the Caribbean. There was a decisive match between the countries of Barbados and Grenada. You probably don't even know that Grenada is a country, unless you are Joy Um, who has memorized every country on this planet Earth. The tournament organizers decided to change traditional rules and award a golden goal. Now, for those of you who don't watch soccer, golden goal is when the game is tied and it goes into extra time. 
Uh, if you score a goal in that time, it's called a, it used to be called a golden goal that ends the game. So the first team to score wins. And so in this tournament, they tried to up the ante, if you will, and they awarded a golden goal, a goal scored in extra time, as two goals instead of as one. So you get an extra goal, goals for, right? Now in soccer, as you've just experienced with the Korean national team, goal differential matters. So what happened in this match was incredible. Because of the standing situation that Barbados and Granada were in, Barbados not only had to beat Granada, they had to do so by two goals in order to advance to the next round. Now, however, the game was played, and by the near end of the match, Barbados was winning two to one, so only one goal. But remember, they have to win by two. So what do they do? Well, they try their very best for the last 10 minutes of the match to score that, that third goal. Just kidding. No, they don't, because that would make this story really boring. For the last 10 minutes of this match, they decide, let's let them score. Why? If they tie the game, it'll go into extra time, and then they just got to score one goal in that extra 30 minutes to get a two goal, like plus two goals. Does that make sense? So they're doing the math in their heads, and they're going, okay, what's easier, Sco trying to score one goal in 10 minutes or one goal in 30 minutes? And the math was simple. Oh, three times time, so we'll let them score, right? So in the last 10 minutes of this soccer match, you can watch the highlights online. It's hilarious. I watched it this week. Um, they basically tried their very best to allow the other team to score and tie the game. The game would go to extra time, and then Barbados would have to hope to score the golden goal, which was a more likely hope, essentially giving them a win by two goals because of the rules. Now, instead of trying to score that extra goal in the last 10 minutes, they decide that, as I said, let them score. But they took the rules that they were given, and they used them, but in doing so, what did they do? Barbados destroyed the spirit of the game. And the spirit of any game or sport is what? To try and win and compete and do your best, right? That's the spirit of sport. But they destroyed this. Now, if you watch the YouTube highlights, the last minutes of this match is nothing like any soccer match you have ever seen in your life. Barbados actually scores on themselves because the other team clicks in on what's going on. So they're like, nah, we're not going to score. It's like a wide open net. They decide to just kick it out of bounds. So the Barbados is like, fine, we'll just score on our own net. So in the 87th minute, they just score on their own net, like literally just walk the ball into their net. And they tie the game. So then what does Granada do? Well, Granada's at the top of the standing, so they're like, wait, we can't allow this to happen. We, can't, we, 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 just, we just can't. So they try to score on their own net. So you know what Barbados does? They defend Granada's net. It's hilarious. So Granada catches on to all these things. So basically, the end of this match, for the 10, 15 minutes or so, Barbados is trying to score on either net. And Granada, or sorry, Granada is trying to score on either net, and Barbados is defending both nets. It's hilarious. It's an absolute gong show. The game is completely ruined. Why? It's the over-application of the rules for self-gain, and it destroyed the spirit of the game. Now, of course, the rule makers in their fallacy could not have foreseen this. Now they know never to do this again. <laughs> now, why do I tell you this story? 
because the Pharisees had done something similar. Not in the same exact way, but something similar. In that, they took the law of God, but over-applied its principles so as to invent rigid guidelines that took the law too far so as to destroy the very spirit, the very essence of the laws of God. It is Jesus who reminds us that the law can be summed up by the command to what? Love the Lord and love your neighbor. And yet the very thing the Pharisees seemed not to be doing were those two things. For their lust had led them to a perversion of the law that centered their love unto themselves. The Pharisees had become what we call Sabbatarians. Their devotion was to the keeping of the law and not to the keeping of godliness. The law was given to form a young nation, Israel, its morals, its ethics, its values, its virtues, but they're also given as political parameters to keep them safe from one another, right? Some people ask, like, why does God say eye for an eye, right? Someone pokes your eye out, poke the other guy's eye out, right? That seems like a brutal law, right? It's a little savage nowadays um, where we kind of teach forgiveness, right? Jesus would say, well, turn the other cheek, right? Uh, why, is, why was that the case? Well, back then, if someone poked someone's eye out, that guy would just literally kill that guy. So God was like, whoa, 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 eye for an eye, <laughs> okay? So if you poke his eye out, don't poke the other guy's eye out. It was a parameter in place for judicial reasons to keep them morally sane. So this was really the purpose. They showed Israel daily that they could not possibly be holy on their own. Their faith was to be put in God and God's covenant faithfulness to them. But over the course of time, as the Pharisaic movement birthed and grew around the time of the Maccabees, which is the time between the Old and New Testament, the law itself, the wording of the law, had become God. And the law became a means of self-righteousness, a means to show off religious piety and gain honor in the public sphere. The Sabbath-keeping, circumcision, and kosher diet had become markers of the faith that far extended the parameters that the Old Testament outlined. This is why Paul condemns the Judaizers in Galatians who try to reinstate these markers into the new Christian community in Galatia. And he condemns this. It is not to say this, that Sabbath keeping is ungodly. Clearly, the Christian community continues to uphold weekly gathering, look at us now, in accordance with the fourth commandment, as it demands. But what the Pharisees and others did was that they took that which was good, and instead of focusing on the rest that it offered, nor the worship of God that it was designed to promote, they placed their emphasis on what they ought not to be doing on the Sabbath, that which was forbidden. They took the letter of the law to its extreme end. You may remember the parable of the Good Samaritan, where the life of a man is ignored. For what? Religious cleanliness? Common sense and higher godly ethics were completely deprioritized for the sake of what? Precision in law-keeping. Remember in John 5, when the man at Bethesda is healed at the pool, having been unable to walk for 30 plus years of his life, suddenly healed of that condition. Instead of rejoicing with him, the Jews question him, by what authority has someone commanded you and allowed you to walk while carrying your mat on the Sabbath? This is an atrocity to God's laws. One commentator notes for us the Talmud which speaks of Sabbath-keeping in this way. Quote, 
The Talmud describes the Sabbath as a holy ordinance of God and ordains that whoever observes the Sabbath becomes a partner with God in the creation of the world and brings salvation to the world. Isn't that incredible? The Jews believe that Sabbath keeping as a holy ordinance of God ordains a human to become a partner with God in the creation of the world and the bringing of salvation into it. You can see how important the Sabbath was to the Pharisees. And you can also see how the Sabbath laws that were created by the Jews, extra-biblically, I should mention, were becoming a problem in God's eyes. This type of rigidity was the reason the Jews of Jesus' time were so burdened by the law. And it is in this season of Judaism in its history that we find the Pharisees coming to Jesus in today's text as a result of their observance of the disciples' actions. And in their eyes, all they could see were probably two infractions, but only one of which is mentioned to us today. The first infraction would have been certainly this, that they had surpassed, listen to this ridiculousness, the permissible amount of steps that a Jew was allowed to walk on the Sabbath. Can you guess how many steps or paces they were allowed to walk? It's exactly 1,999. They would have surely benefited from a step counter back then. But they didn't have one. If one was to take even one step more. So you take 1999 steps, that's fine. You take 2,000, they would be deemed a blasphemer. Now how they kept count of each other's steps is a mystery to me. But the approximate distance that this would allow one to travel is about 800 meters. The second infraction, which is the one at the center of today's text, is disciples had picked and taken the heads of grain. Luke adds that they were so hung they were hungry, so they were rubbing the heads of the grain in their hands and eating the grain as they walked. The Pharisees saw this as an act of reaping, and so they questioned Jesus, why do your disciples do this? This thing that is unlawful. Isn't it ridiculous? They have made the Sabbath and its laws, a God that replaces God who gave them the Sabbath and the laws. Point number two. The first point is a warning. The second point is also a warning, an appeal to Scripture. Jesus' response to the Pharisees is minimized in the modern Christian's mind because we know that Jesus is God and that he is the Son of God. We understand who he truly is. We understand that his authority supersedes that of the Pharisees and of the Old Testament. But in the moment that Jesus responded to the Pharisees, the participants of this story did not know these things about Jesus. And so Jesus' response would have been heard a different way. I would assume it would have been shocking. Shocking in the sense that it challenged, perhaps was even perceived as rude. And it was something no one would dare have said to the Pharisees and the religious leaders of their time. Jesus' response to their question of why his disciples were acting against the law or unlawfully is another question, uh, and his response is a, another question that's thrust at them. And the first few words of that question is this, have you never read? And then he goes on to quote, of course, this story found in 1 Samuel. But brothers and sisters, let me just focus on those first four words. 
Have you never read? Question mark. This is incredible. And it's incredible for two reasons. First, Jesus is appealing to their highest authority, which was what? The letter of the word. The very source from which they were supposedly drawing their concern with Jesus and his disciples, and he throws it right back at them. Have you never read? And the second is this, that asking a Pharisee whether they have read scripture is like going to your doctor's office and correcting their diagnosis of you based on what you read from WebMD. Of course they read. If there is any group of people on earth at this time that would have read the scriptures, it was these guys. And still Jesus asks them, have you never read? His question is not whether they have done the act of reading, as they've simply been acting in accordance with the law. The question is, have you understood what you have read? Jesus is using their own weapon against them to show them that even their source of authority speaks against them. This is an incredible moment and surely would have been seen as defiance, and yet Jesus thrusts this question at the Pharisees. Now, the scripture that Jesus does speak of is from 1 Samuel chapter 21. And at this time, David and his men were being hunted by Saul. So if you know the story, Saul was king, first king of Israel. Uh, David is anointed as the second king of Saul's sins, right? The Spirit of God leads him, or leaves him. And David is anointed as the next king by Samuel. But then Saul catches wind of this, and he's really cheesed, so he starts hunting him down to kill him, basically, right? Uh, David, having already been anointed as the king of Israel, and should have really been the king at that time, um, is famished. They're tired, they're weary, they've been hiding, and they're running from this crazy king. And so in their famished state, they come to a place called Nob, and they enter the house of God, a temple, if you will. There they meet not Abiathar, as Jesus has said, but his father, Ahimelech. Now, Abiathar is alive, but he's not currently the priest of the temple yet. Uh, but I'll touch on this, but Abiathar's priesthood oversaw the majority of David's duration and lifetime and is closely associated with him in Israelite history. So Jesus is likely speaking of a time period, not so much misquoting the Old Testament. He's talking to them in their language, if you will. But the details should be noted that Ahimelech is the priest noted in 1 Samuel 21 that David went to in that temple on that day. And a peculiar scenario ensues. In their hunger, they ask the priest food. Well, David asked for food. And the only bread the priest had was something called the consecrated bread. Now, this bread was a collection of 12 loaves of fresh bread that was baked on a weekly basis, and they were placed on a golden table at the altar to signify God's presence with the 12 tribes of Israel. Each Sabbath, so every week, this bread was placed, or sorry, replaced with a fresh batch of 12 loaves of bread. And the prior week's bread which was the consecrated bread, would be allowed to be eaten by the priests alone. However, Ahimelech, in his wisdom of knowing who David was, the next anointed king of Israel, and knowing that the law of this bread keeping was not meant to be kept at the cost of human life, gave this consecrated bread to David and his men, only on one condition, that they had abstained from sex. You can see why Jesus would draw from this narrative. His point to the Pharisees and to us today. Look at the heart 
of Ahimelech and Abiathar. Look at how the law was applied. What values were upheld. What would have made it even more difficult for the Pharisees to argue against this example was that the perpetrator in this story of the unlawful act was the greatest king in Israel's history. A figure that the Pharisees would dare not speak against, King David. But be careful, brother and sister, to not read this particular quote from Jesus as a justification of the actions of his disciples in the sense of excusing them from fault. His point is, well, they're not reaping. They certainly are, in a sense, reaping. His point is this, to show that David and his men's actions are a precedence for his own. David acts as an authority, and the law is under that authority in this episode. Now, if David is a prototype of the messianic promise, the king of Israel to come, Jesus' point is this, that the king has come, and he is before you. Look and see, for in David you see a king who does what is best for his people, not in the bending of law, but in upholding its greatest virtues. And here too, before you, Pharisee, is a king who has come in the same sense as the Davidic king. But even David is but a minion of Jesus, the true king of kings. Later in Mark's gospel, we'll read of Jesus' questioning of how the Messiah is both the son and Lord of David, as David refers to the Messiah. The answer is this, that the Messiah will be a descendant of the household of David, but he will be divine, thus making him Lord of David, both the son and the Lord of David. Now in this brief appeal, Jesus shows us this, that the scriptures speak against the rigidity of the Jewish order at the time, and also that the son of David and the Lord of David had now finally come. The Messiah was here. Finally, third point, the Son of Man is Lord of all. And if anything, this is really the main point. Verses 27 to 28. This pericope that we've just read ends with an emphatic statement, one that flips everything around for the Pharisees. What began as a story of men who were failing under the law ends with the law yielding to a man. But not just any man. By Jesus' words, the Son of Man his favorite self-designation and title. Surely, a call to Daniel 7. What this title teaches us is of the authority that Jesus has because of who he is. He has already taught that he is like that of David, hinting at who he is. But here, he makes it explicit. He is the Son of Man. He is Lord. And the very Sabbath that he is being accused of breaking, Jesus iterates that such things fall under his authority because he's the very one who created them. The Sabbath was created for man in the sense that its purpose is founded in guiding and aiding human conduct in life. But that conduct is meant to be God-honoring. It is meant to be God-centered. It is not the word of that law that is to be honored. And so Jesus restores proper understanding of the law and its relation to all of man. But then in verse 28, and this is the exclamation point, he states something even more prolific, that both man and Sabbath, and all things really, are under him. Why? He is Lord. Brothers and sisters, we have trouble understanding this term in our modern lives because you have never had an earthly Lord. 
I dare say this. I think people in North Korea have a better understanding of what Lord is. People who've been under the tyranny of dictators, people who've been under like oppressive governments and powerful singular indiv individuals, they know what it's like to have a singular figure totally control every single element of your life. But you have a prime minister who you make fun of, who you mock, who you can vote out anytime. And dare I say you treat your God that way. We need to be careful in understanding. I'm not saying God's a tyrannical dictator. What I'm saying is, he is Lord of all, of every aspect of your life. But we treat him very much like an elected political official. He is on the throne of heaven, brothers and sisters. He's the king of the kingdom. Who could claim that other than God himself this is a powerful declaration being made by Jesus of who he truly is and the authority he thus possesses. Now, the audience at the time would have found trouble or hesitation in such a declaration from a man, but as believers, we know this to be true. And it is this true identity that grounds his authority over even the Sabbath, the very thing that the Pharisees place over everything else. Now, a note must be made here that Jesus is not saying this, that the Sabbath is wrong or that it is not good. It's not the takeaway you should get. Now, as mentioned before, and previously in other sermons, the Sabbath is the fourth commandment. It's a commandment from God. It's a good thing. However, allow James Edwards to neatly sum this up for you. I quote, The law is not here regarded as an autonomous revelation, which in legalism tends to replace the person of God. Nor is Jesus a free agent, who abrogates the Sabbath or the moral order or the revealed will of God, as in antinomianism. Rather, the sayings of verses 27 to 28 teach that the righteous purpose of God, as manifested in the law, can be recovered and fulfilled only, only in relation to Jesus, who is its Lord. I conclude this sermon today with just a simple idea. I'm reminded in our reading of the text today of Matthew chapter 11, in which Jesus states these words to an oppressed people under the law by its leaders. You're going to be, those of you who grew up in the church, you're going to hear, you've probably heard this a million times. It reads, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Jesus is not saying that a life in him is the easy life to live, in the sense that the earthly life becomes easy. But what he is saying is that true rest for the soul can only be found in him that the oppression under the law that the Jews were experiencing, the, birdie, the burden and heavy-laden state that they felt could only be relieved in Christ. Because what they cannot do, absolutely, is uphold the law to perfection. So what all people need, all of mankind, is a Savior. One who is holy, 
one who lives the life that none of us can live, a Savior who takes on the death that we deserve. It is to him we are being invited to go to. And in him alone will we find rest for our souls. Brothers and sisters, it is very close to Christmas. Praise be to God, for his yoke is easy and his burden is light. For our Lord has accomplished all things on our behalf. He has sent his son and he has died for us. All glory to God. Let's pray and reflect on what he's taught us today. Can we all rise for worship?
can use this opportunity to hear your word. I pray that your word can, it will be receptive of your word and will be obedient, God. I pray that your spirit will transform us and point us away from darkness and towards your light, God. I pray that these offerings will be used for expansion of your kingdom and that more people will get to hear the gospel and accept you as their Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. you may be seated. Just going to conclude this time of worship with uh, just a few announcements. First and foremost, welcome to all of you. Any new faces? And we have some. Uh, welcome to our church, and uh, hopefully uh, we get your names down and, and uh, get to know you a little bit more. Uh, so welcome, team. You can definitely get on that. Um, our offerings can be sent two ways. Of course, we have the old school basket plate in the back with envelopes. So if you'd like to give that way, just make sure you write your legal name down uh, so we can issue tax receipts at the end of the year. And uh, you can also give online. Uh, through e-transfer to sheetgatefellowship at gmail.com. If you're giving towards, of course, our Asia Minor and or local campus ministers, please just note that in the notes section. We'll make sure those funds get allocated uh, appropriately to those people. Uh, we'd like to invite all of you to join us for a warm bowl of food uh, over at our other location, just a few minutes south of here. Uh, all of you are welcome to join us for fellowship as lunch has been provided for us graciously by our Adults, actually we're adults by our can. Um, some of us are adults. Um, there will be no confession study today. Uh, the reason being, today is our last normal sort of Sunday. Uh, I don't want to say normal as like the other two are abnormal, but uh, next week's Christmas and of course the week after that, it's the first uh, New Year's Sunday. So today I'd like to take some time for us to reflect on the year past, get to know each other a little bit more. Uh, so what our welcome team has been facilitating as you've been walking in, and if you haven't been talked to, our welcome team will definitely uh, like to talk to you, is uh, we'd like to invite you after lunch to uh, gather with us in small groups. So we're just going to randomize groups. We're going to keep couples together, don't worry. Uh, and we're going to send you out uh, wherever you like. So we have a group leader for each group, and uh, we'll just you can head over to whatever coffee shop or dessert or whatever you want. Uh, the church will cover the cost of one coffee per person, uh, nothing beyond that. Um, so don't go all out or anything. Uh, but we'd like to pay for something. Uh, and all of you are welcome, even if you're new to the church, we'd like to invite you to this, uh, to join us in a small group to just discuss how our year has gone, what we've learned in the Lord, how we've grown, how we've suffered, uh, what season we're in. We'd like to just pray for each other. And so we're going to take about 45 minutes to an hour to do that. Um, and our welcome team will facilitate those conversations. And all of you, again, are more than welcome to join us. Whether you're new or old, does not matter. Um, so please, join us for that. Uh, so again, Andrew's he Andrew is heading our welcome team, so please talk to him as we're looking to get those groups done. So as soon as lunch ends, we'll quickly clean up, and you'll head out, and that'll be that. Now following that time, um, which should be anywhere between like 4 to 5-ish, um, at 6 o'clock, uh, we've rented a soccer field uh, at the Toronto Soccer Plex on the east end for two hours. And so um, most of you have already let me know that you're coming. Um, but anyone else is welcome to join us. Please be with us for uh, two hours. We're just going to play, um, and we'd love to have some fellowship that way. And you're free to come to watch, too, if you'd like. Watch some terrible soccer after watching incredible soccer this morning. Um <laughs> Uh, discipleship group signups. So we're going to actually do this not as like a collective sign-up sheet, but we're going to have individuals actually contact you and ask you whether you'd like to be part of our DGs for next coming year. It's going to be a year-long commitment, so you're going to have to commit for the whole year. It's roughly going to be bi-weekly, 
actually not roughly, it's gonna be bi-weekly. Um, one week will be online, and then the second will be in-home. So your host or your leader will likely host those DG gatherings um, in a place of whatever, choosing whatever home is appropriate. Uh, so you'll meet physically once, and then you'll meet online once, just to, you know, for travel reasons. Um, but if you end up loving each other so much that you just want to meet up physically both times, definitely do that too, right? Um, no problemo. But we'd love to in invite you into that. Uh, so DGs will start, commence uh, early in January. We're going to have our leaders set very soon, and then we'll um, allocate the groups, and we'll go from there, right? So it'll be groups of about five, six people-ish, um, and by gender, and then we're all going to read the same material together. So we'll go through the same discipleship material for the entirety of the year. So if you'd like to participate in that, we'd love to invite you to that and uh, invite you to be part of it. Now, if at another, you know, maybe midway through 2023, you're like, ah, kinda, I'm kind of missing out on this stuff. Uh, I want to join in. That's fine too, right? So if you can't make a decision now, it'd be better. But if you'd like to delay it for later, that's okay too. We're just going to judge you really hard. Um, Christmas party is this Thursday, December 22nd. So Arya and her team of Avengers has been planning this incredible party uh, for about a month now. Uh, and so some fun things in store for us. So a couple notes, of course, $10 fee to join, cover security and rental costs and decorations and prizes. Um, white elephant, so if you're participating, please let them know so that we know how to do the price. What's the budget on 25, 20, $25? Yeah, $25 on white, white elephant. Sorry? Minimum, yes. Go all out. By all means, buy as many batteries as you'd like. It's totally fine. Um, so yeah, so that's that. Um, so Thursday, potluck as well, so please bring food. On Christmas Day, our KM has requested uh, that we don't bring food, that we just eat. So I know like they're being really generous to us, and I think they're going to prepare like a lot of food for us. But maybe we can bring something, like just a few of us. I know we have a potluck on Thursday, but if you're able, maybe you can contribute on next Sunday as well. But anyways, let Arya know. I don't know if we need to know like what food everyone's bringing, but you know, don't be that guy and bring like a two-liter can of Coke, right? Like or a bottle of Coke. Like don't be that person. We will judge you for sure if you do that. Um, or rice. You know that one guy that brings white rice? Like don't be that guy. Like, please, please. Like we will kick you out. Um, summer 22nd. Okay. So please, 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 if you can, please be there. The capacity has lifted. So apparently there were COVID restrictions, but capacity has lifted. We can uh, have up to 100 people now. So anyone and everyone's welcome. Um, so if you have like a friend that maybe you want to invite to our church or anything like that, and you like maybe this would be an easy way for them to get to know us, please feel free to invite them. Yeah. So um, yeah, just let Aria know. Deadline's today though, right? So 11.59 p.m. today, please let us know. If you need the sign-up sheet, please talk to Aria. Aria is very not hard to miss. She's right there with the orange hair. Okay. <laughs> Christmas service next week is as normal. So same time, same place, everything. We move over there. We eat our Christmas lunch, late lunch, and we're good, okay? New Year's service is on uh, the 31st. Uh, this is an optional service, but I would highly recommend you to join us on this day. Uh, on the 31st, uh, roughly around 6, 7 p.m.-ish, gather at the... Uh, I'm going to try to get this building, actually, if I don't think they have a New Year's service. Um, so either here or there. Uh, just come and join us for some worship, and um, yeah, just we'd like to pray for you as the new year starts. So if you're able to come, please be with us. Of course, not mandatory, but uh, if you can begin or end the year that way, and start the year, I guess, uh, that'd be fantastic. We'll do a, like, a little countdown together. Uh, so new year service, 
On the first, uh, we will have our uh, communion to begin the year. So we'll invite our uh, senior pastor in to lead us in a time of Lord's Supper. And that'll be fantastic, I think, to just start off the year that way. Okay? If you have any other questions, let me know. Andrew, happy birthday. Andrew Lee, by the way, not Moon. Happy birthday. You actually have to come up and grab this book. Yeah. It requires some effort here. Uh, this is R.C. Sproul's Knowing Scripture. Very monumental, very important book for me, anyways. Know the Word of God. There you go. Happy birthday. Which means we have cake. And, you know, being the Pharisees that we are, we love cake. Um, so we're going to head over and have cake after as well. So that'll be fantastic. Um, with that said, oh, just final thing. We do need a lot of help next year. So whether it be praise team things or like just media stuff or like anything else, any area where you see, wow, our church is lacking here and you love to help, we need your help. So please get on that. Uh, I will be departing for Chicago on the 26th, returning on the 31st, 30th? 30th, yes. Uh, for a week, I'll be in Chicago preaching to a bunch of young kids in America. Uh, please pray for me. Six sermons, one seminar on prayer. It's going to be crazy. Uh, pray for these kids and uh, just their growth and maturity in the faith. And uh, hopefully the word of God will compel them. Um, with that said, let's rise and end off the Lord's Prayer. Let us pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for joining us today. And uh, yeah, feel free to mingle, and then we'll head over to the other church.